0: Welcome to the ABA and PT podcast, where I interview scientists and practitioners from the world of precision teaching and behaviour analysis and share their journeys of how they found their way to the science of behaviour, as well as their discoveries through the use of the standard acceleration chart. I'm Mandy Mason, a scientist practitioner in Perth, Australia, impacted by my daughter with autism, who caused me to knock on enough doors to find my way to this extraordinary field and I'm on a journey to share how precision teaching and the use of the standard acceleration chart can change the world and make it a better place to live. I'm managing to combine my two great loves of sprinting and working with kids and still getting away with it. This is episode four of the ABA and PT podcast, and I'm delighted to welcome Dr. John Eshelman to the podcast in what I've called so many lessons, so little time. Dr. Kimberly Behrens once said to me that if you don't feel like you're standing on the edge of a cliff about to jump off, You might not be doing something important enough. In approaching Dr. Eshelman to record this podcast, I definitely felt like I was standing on the edge of a cliff. But what I discovered is that John has dedicated his life to making our science accessible to all. And in this episode, he speaks of Ogg's CoLab, or Common Language for Analyzing Behavior. And as you'll hear, he has the ability to express complex scientific phenomena in understandable language and thereby stand in Ogg's wish for the use of plain English. He speaks on a variety of topics, from the richness of SAFMES to his explanation of COLAB, his views on how our rich underpinnings have been watered down in a rush to train behaviour technicians to meet the demand for frontline staff for the autism field, the initiative to limit the BCBA certifications to North America and questioning the reason behind doing so. He also identifies a dissertation topic on work commenced by Steve Graff for anyone that's looking to do one. So Great. So many lessons, so little time. It's my absolute pleasure to welcome Dr. John Eshelman. Hello, Dr. John Eshelman. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's an incredible pleasure to have you here. This is the fourth episode of the ABA MPT podcast, and I feel so blessed to have you. Strangely enough, you were here in Perth in 2001. Is that right?
1: Yes, that was. I was... uh... Uh, down there, I was uh, staying with uh, Jordana Herga, back then known as Giordana Malibello. and uh, they had like a, a ticket on Qantas Airlines, and so it didn't cost me any money to uh, travel from the United States to uh, Australia, and so I flew from Los Angeles to Sydney, then from Sydney across the continent to uh, Perth. Actually, I flew from Atlanta, Georgia, to Los Angeles first. So I flew across two continents and across one ocean. So I figured a that's, long a, long that's a half an orbit around the Earth. So, it's like, John Glenn doesn't have much on me for that. Um, <laughs> you know, he flew around the Earth three times, right? Um, so yeah, that's uh, like orbiting uh, half a planet right there. That's um, a long way. Yeah. That's
0: a, that's a lot of drinks. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Although Qantas was a very nice airline, at least back then, I don't know what it is now. But yeah, uh, yeah
0: it's still a great airline.
1: Yeah, yeah and uh, you know that was in June, and I was there June and July of uh, 2001. Uh, that was so that was just a few months before quote 9 11 back here in the United States. I guess June and July technically is Australia's winter time, right? That's I mean. right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's. To,
0: jackets but everybody from overseas is
1: still
0: walking around in shorts yeah, we, yeah
1: we're very brave here when i when i got down there i mean i had to spend nearly a day in sydney so i went over and saw the world famous sydney opera house and uh they had all these military vehicles there and so i walked up to one of the soldiers and i said well what's going on he said it's queen's birthday mate and so i guess it must have been queen elizabeth's uh Birthday celebration yeah. that they were apparently having uh, down there, and so one forgets that—at uh, least Americans tend to forget—that you all are part of the British Commonwealth, <laughs> and we're not. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah. you know, yeah. I, I guess it's more for ceremonial purposes more than anything else. I mean, you do have your own government and everything.
0: Yeah, um, we yeah we are grown up enough to have our own government. <laughs> yeah. We're still a young country, though we're very young. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Sean. I'd like to get started by asking you a question uh, about your upbringing and um, what you might have thought about in terms of what your early influences were that you ended up finding yourself in a career of helping people.
1: I guess, you know, when I was like really young, my dad always encouraged an interest in science for me. When I was in high school, I took an advanced biology course talk, taught by this man named Dr. Frank Gasper, who was also like an adjunct at the local university. And so the last nine-week term of this advanced biology class, he changed and taught us some psychology. So it was mostly like Freud, and ego, superego, that sort of thing. But for me, yeah. it was like in the context of... Uh, Okay, that was like, I always thought of psychology as being part of biology, even though obviously it's not. But, you know, that's how I kind of started out. So I was really intrigued by that. So when I, when I went off to college, um, I said, well, I'm going to major in psychology. And that's uh, what I did. And I took a course from this person named Dr. Steve Graf, G-R-A-F, Graf. Yeah. And uh, there was some experimental psychology. And I thought, wow, this is really cool. And so I said, well, I want to be in experimental psychology. So I took a bunch of other courses from Dr. Graf and also from this other professor named Dr. Mark Masaki. And, you know, that was all experimental uh, psychology, perception, psychophysics, that sort of thing. But one of Graf's courses was called Applied Reinforcement Theory. And that course had three textbooks one was uh, Developing Self Control by Carol Sunny Foster. And that was kind of interesting. We had Introduction to Behavior Modification, which was produced by Dick Malott's Behavior Delia Company. And the third book was The Handbook of the Standard Behavior Chart by Hank Pennypacker, Carl Koenig, and Ogden Lindsley. And so that was like in 1975. And that's when I first learned about what later became known as the Standard Acceleration Chart. Back then they called it the Standard Behavior Chart. And again, that was one of the misimpressions i had earlier i thought well you know golly everybody in behavior analysis must be using this really cool chart and i found out later on that hardly anybody in, it, in applied behavior analysis actually even knows about it much less uses it but that was kind of like those were kind of like my main cusp events uh later on i applied to graduate school and went to west virginia university uh, Ernie and Julie Vargas were my uh, major professors and there was in the behavior analysis and a human resources program. And I said, well, you know, this is uh, this is what I want. And so I went ahead and, you know, got my doctoral degree in basically behavior analysis. And uh, the rest, you know, here I am. <laughs> oh,
0: incredible good fortune.
1: I think so, <laughs> yeah.
0: I- For those of us that that know that journey, incredible. Um, Who were Steve
1: Graff's influencers? Um, Graff? Well, Dr. Graff was uh, influenced primarily by Ogden Lindsley. In Precision Teaching, we have this thing called Chart Parents. Are you familiar with that? Yes, yes, I am, but
0: I'd love you to explain
1: that to the audience that don't know what that is. A Chart Parent is uh, just whoever teaches you how to use a standard acceleration chart. And so it's kind of like a tradition in precision teaching and acceleration charting world of like knowing who your chart lineage is. And so Dr. Graf was Lindsley. I was, Dr. Graf was my chart parent. And at the conferences, you know, whether it's at the PT conference or at the ABAI convention, you know, we usually had like things events called chart shares. And everybody were like, You'd sign up for the chart share, and we would like you'd put down your chart parent's name. So I would sign up because I had a couple charts to share, and I'd write Steve Graf next to mine. Graf would sign up, and he was actually the host of it usually. And Graf would write Ogden Lindsley. Lindsley would sign up, and he would write next to his name B.F. Skinner. So, um, wow. yeah, but you know, <laughs> I got to know Skinner at least as you know, an acquaintance when I was at West Virginia University, because his daughter, Julie Vargas, was one of my uh, professors at West Virginia. His son-in-law, Ernie, was my advisor. So, you know, usually at, um, during the winter break, Christmas vacation time of year, uh, the, bar- the the skiers would fly down from the Boston area to Morgantown, West Virginia, and then usually the Vargases would have us grad students over for, like, you know, a party or an event or something. So, Skinner would be there and, you know, you could talk to him. And I could find out, like, for instance, he was a bit of a Boston Red Sox fan, baseball. And so, really? yeah, when you think about it, I mean, you ask people about B.F. Skinner, they think of this stern scientist with kind of scally face, white lab coat, you know. Very brave, but, um, you know, brave. He had other interests, you know, in the arts, music, uh, you know, I'm not sure how much of a baseball fan he was, but, like, that was his team. And uh, uh, one one little fun story was when I went down to interview at West Virginia University to go to graduate school, I met with uh, Dr. Vargas, and then we were talking, and he said, well, let's go get some lunch. And at the time, I drove a, a Chevrolet Camaro with a V50 cubic inch engine and four-barrel carburetor, you know, like a power car. And so we go out to the parking lot and Dr. Vargas, Ernie Vargas, says, Well, I'll drive you. And so he gets in, we go up to his car and it was like, okay, that's a Camaro, just like mine. So I was telling wow. him, I said, Well, you know, that's really cool, Dr. Vargas. I got a Camaro also. He said, Oh, oh no, no. This was Fred's car. And I'm <laughs> thinking to myself, Fred? And I said, Oh yeah, you know him as BF Skinner. And so I'm thinking, Whoa. <laughs> but he donated to the Vargases. So so that, was, that always impressed me. Like, Skinner drove a Camaro movie for a while. <laughs> um, so, you know, that, 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 those kind of events, like, for me, offered me a different perspective on, like, Skinner than probably most people have because, you know, Skinner, I got to see and, and become acquainted with him and uh, saw that he had some interest other than just being, you know, behavior analyst 24-7, 365. Yeah. So my main influence in terms of uh, being like a mentor was Dr. Graff, uh, but also Ernie and Julie Vargas. And then later on in life, uh, I want to give one shout-out or honorable mention to Dr. Chuck Mervitz. Back in 2007, Dr. Mervitz hired me as a professor at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. I really learned a lot from Chuck about, you know, how to, like, teach, treat students, put how to prioritize students. Uh, Chuck was always saying, like, you know, please, um, if you're in a meeting with the students and you got to go off to, like, a faculty meeting or something, the student comes first. To right? finish up your student meeting before you <laughs> head on uh, off to the other meeting or something. So that, was, that, that kind of thing impressed me. So I always I include Chuck, um, who passed away a couple of years ago, sad to say. I, I include him as a third uh, major influence in my life. I mostly stuck around in precision teaching, but also, you know, was in the field of applied behavior analysis, doing that same time span.
0: And who were other people that were coming through at the same time as you you, that took the route of precision teaching?
1: Um, Coming through at the same time? Well, like I said, Dr. Mermits preceded me by a few years. You know, a few years after I I graduated from West Virginia, um, Michael Fabrizio and Allison Morris, uh, I think Julie Vargas was their um, major professor at WVU. You know, there were probably a few other people in the cohort that uh, um, had some interest of background in precision teaching, but I'm I'm, not really, I'm kind of blocking on people's names, I guess, at the moment, sorry to say.
0: So tell us, at your time in Chicago, well, straight from graduate school, where did where did you go straight after that?
1: After graduate school, um, well, I graduated with my doctorate in actually officially in educational psychology, um, but more specifically in behavior analysis and human resources in 1988. Okay, and then I, for several years, I worked for a small company called Precision Learning Systems that was based out of Columbus, Ohio. That got bought out by Daniels and Associates, which is a performance management company located in Atlanta, Georgia. So they moved me down to Atlanta, Georgia area, and I was down there for a decade. That kind of came to an end when they like revamped the company. And so I worked for a small company for a while then Uh, I got hired on on a project that was located in Galesburg, Monmouth area of Illinois. And so I moved back north to where I met my wife, Kathy. And uh, within a couple of years then I got hired by Dr. Mervitz at the Chicago School. So that's kind of my history in a nutshell.
0: That's so interesting. Can you tell us about your time with Aubrey? Um, What sort of work you were doing there?
1: Uh, For Aubrey Daniels Associates, we were mostly developing like instructional systems basically mostly computer based instruction. There's actually my my doctoral dissertation by the way was a programming instruction on a Macintosh computer where I was trying to do like a typing version of SAF meds. Okay, so I call them TAF meds. <laughs> right. um, and so that, that stand that would stand for so SAF stands for Sale Fast Minute Every Day Shuffled the so TAFMIS would be type all fast minute and every day shuffled. And so we took that technology and you know developed it into the little company called Precision Learning Systems. Um, where we had like some software where you can do like, like excuse me, electronic versions of SAFMEDs, the same way. Sometimes they were they were typing responses, but other times they move a mouse and point and click for responses. And so that's basically what we, I was doing when I was working with Aubrey Daniels and Associates, and then later on with uh, the little follow on company that I worked with uh, afterwards. Um, and what
0: was the application of that computer program? Where, where did it end up?
1: Well, when I was working with Aubrey Daniels and Associates and Precision Learning Systems, and later on, the one after Aubrey Daniels called Easy Learn. We had corporate clients, and you know, Aubrey Daniels and Associates mostly deals with what they call Fortune 500 companies, uh, big corporations, and the main thrust of Aubrey Daniels' corp- you know, company was to bring in performance management, which is part of OBM, Organization Behavior Management, and into the corporate world. So when we were developing projects, uh, we had quite a variety of them, but one was with like Ford Motor Company teaching uh, troubleshooting skills. So like with electronics. So like being able to, to see electronic component and say what it is, see the component, say what it does, see the name of the component, say what it does, say what the purpose is. So that's where you can bring all this stimulus equivalence in, right? I mean the A to B, the B to C, the C to D and back and forth and so forth, with the reflexivity, symmetry and transitivity and so forth. Everything the what we call equivalence based instruction, the whole nine yards of that. So we had clients like Ford Motor. Another was Delta Faucet. Another, this is actually after was with Aubrey Daniels, but one called Rustoleum. You know, it's a company that makes paint. It's incredible that, you know, if you think about it, a lot of these things that have a lot of basic facts that, you know, the companies themselves have to teach their employees. When you go to school, you don't learn about defects in paint, for instance. But when yeah. if you're if you're applying paint... <laughs> You know, um, there's like 30 kinds of defects that, if you think from boiling up to uh, producing little indentations or something like that, um, that you have to be aware of. So like, you know, see the defect, say its name, but also see the defect or say the name, see the name of the defect and say what you do, for instance. Those would be like the learning channels. So we had a bunch of corporate clients like that. One, we had, uh, when I was, after I'd left Aubrey Daniels, we had one with the, a company that makes automatic doors, for instance. Okay. So there's a lot of like arcane, esoteric knowledge that exists out in the corporate world. Before I went to Aubrey Daniels when I was with Precision Learning Systems, uh, the telephone company, we had a couple different telephone companies as our clients. And so, like, you can just imagine, like, with a corporate client like that, like, you know, if you're doing like remote troubleshooting and someone calls you and says, well, my phone's not working, well, then. You have to be fluent at not only asking them questions, but guiding the questions, and then trying to figure out—you know—do I need to send a truck out to the site, or do I need kind of be solved, you know, just over the phone, so to speak? And so, there's a lot of need, in my view, in any industry, including education, of course, for anything that's uh, fluency-based instruction. Okay. So. Was
0: one built into this program that you designed? Was there a chat involved?
1: No, this was way back in the, the 80s, 90s, the early 2000s. It was all like computer-based. It was like program instruction, but but yeah. adding a fluency component to it. So they would see a question frame on a screen, and it could be like a fill-in-the-blank, multiple choice, true false, or we had one called graphics click where there'd be a, an image shown on the screen and then you can move the mouse pointer and click on like a component or something. And the idea, again, was to, like, run those, like, SAF meds where you do multiple timings, brief, little short instructional timings. The items on the computer would come up in random order, just like you do with SAF, you supposed to shuffle them, right? Yeah. And so that's, that's kind of what we did with, uh, you know, those computer programs back then. Um, but, you know, those were other things that they would, you know, install on the computer or... You know, yeah. some versions later on would operate over the internet.
0: How did you build in, like, mastery criteria to the, to the sets of cards?
1: To the sets of items? Um, we yeah. would uh, kind of either take a guess or just do it empirically. You know, we would, like, we would do, like, a, a certain process where you would, like, you would benchmark test the software once you got, you know, everything kind of mostly developed. Okay, and so like, how how well could like a, you know a fluent adult go through it and just benchmark test it? Then you would we'd field test it uh, on the site with some actual employees and see well kind of how are they responding? What are what are the defects in the design process? Uh, There's anything we need to fix? Do we need to add more items? Take them out? Edit them? The whole nine yards of that, and then you know so we go through some rounds of benchmark testing, field testing, then you know kind of de- develop the goals. More or less empirically or in some cases using the best guess as to you know what something should be this is true today there's for a lot of things there's just many there's just no guidelines out there for fluency goals i mean there, some people have some and but i always question well how they how do they arrive at those and then even if they did arrive at those by some empirical method you should always ask and be skeptical, well, do they apply with my students? Do they, do they apply with this subject matter, or that subject matter, or this situation, or that situation? And they may or may not, okay? So, like, in terms of, like, mastery criteria or goals, that's still something of, uh, of an art more than a science.
0: And did this program end up in education?
1: No. Those early companies, I mean, they weren't very profitable, Okay. So they didn't really, like, journalize too far from that. And, of course, the software now itself is old and obsolete. Uh, I don't even think it would run on a present-day computer, um, sad to say. So it's like there wasn't really any planning for, like, long-term survival of that software. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure people have come up with uh, similar software since, maybe stuff that, that does a lot more It has more, you know, modern features, video animation. Um, Like you said, maybe chat boxes. We're still not quite at the point where we can do like actual staff meds on a computer, like where you would say something and the computer itself would use voice synthesizing software to figure out what exactly you're saying and then record whether there's a correct response or not. Very quickly, right? I mean, you know, Mandy, I was talking about this idea way back in the 1980s, they were saying, "Well, you know, I'm just hoping that it'll be just a couple of years away that we'll be able to like do actual staff on a computer screen where well, you don't have to hold cards; you just have items on the screen, and you see something on the screen, and you say something, and it goes on to the next item." And that would
0: be fantastic. You know, we still yeah you know in our staff training we still use you know manual flashcards to do that. It's
1: but but you know the actually I think the manual flashcards are really great for a lot of things because I don't know if you want me to talk about that, but.
0: uh, I do because it's something I think of a lot of interest in.
1: Yeah. Well, see, the manual stuff is low tech, right? I mean, it's not as low tech as you can get. And I went to a presentation by Rick Cabina back in 2018 at the International Precision Teaching Conference in Seattle. And Dr. Cabina pointed out that he and a colleague like, asked the question, when did did the flashcards begin? And basically about 18, 1820s, 1830s. So we're running up on like almost 200 years of uh, flashcards. Uh, Whenever flashcards were developed, we're we're approximately now at the 200th anniversary of of flashcards, I find that kind of incredible. And there might there might be some antecedents that go back even further, you know, to the 1700s or something. But basically, SAF meds, all they are is flashcards, right? Yeah. Okay. And it's low tech. I mean, you can create them easily. They don't cost much money. All you need to do is get some, you know, card stock. Yeah, kids
0: can use them. Yeah,
1: they can. They, the kids yeah. can make them too.
0: Yeah, they can make them yeah we do that too we get kids to put all their math facts on their cards and they and learn how to you know update slices they mm-hmm. amazing yeah i guess you know that's it's a funny thing i was taught by kimberly burns to teach kids rapid automatic naming and you know we've used lots of different applications quizlet and stuff. i think there's nothing to replace you know manual sets of cards where you can manipulate the number of stimuli and you can load up certain cards mm-hmm. for kids that are struggling with a name and you can, you know, prime them and pull out certain cards. It's, there's nothing, you know, just those cards are very easy to manipulate and be creative with your teaching as you go. It's very hard to, to do that in a computer, so.
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, they have their, both technologies have their advantages and disadvantages. One thing I like about the cards is that, uh, again, you can just hold them in your hand. You, you have this feeling or sense of control over it. Um, it's it's kind of fun to shuffle the cards or, you know, to just mess them around and, and put them together. You can do the CSA learning channel. Both methods, by the way, you know, work and so I'm not trying to disparage one or the other. I mean, they both have their their location, their place.
0: Abigail Corkin, you know, talked about Safmeds on my podcast and she learned Russian using Safmeds. I was, I was going to ask you, what are some of the applications
1: that you've used SAF meds for? Oh, I use them a lot. Um, Bill? Yeah, I put, like, behavior analysis terms uh, on them. I had, of course, I as I, when I was a professor at the Chicago School, I assigned SAF meds in a bunch of my classes. And so yeah. we'd have, like, either behavior analysis terms or standard acceleration chart. One of the things about SAF meds is that they don't all have to be just verbal stimuli on the front side of the card you can on the front side of the card you can put like pictures drawings photographs and that becomes like what Skinner talks about like a tact so like you can have a non-verbal stimulus that can occasion a verbal response so you can put like pictures or whatever you want on the front like I have students make sapiens of various kinds and so I have back in my office I have like uh, a set of cards that from one of my students I kept that has pictures of different kinds of insects on the front. And so you see the picture of the insect and say what species it is, for instance. And that's different from seeing the, you know, the name of some insect and, and giving like a scientific name for it or something. I mean, there's so much you can do with these things. Like I said, you, if you put pictures or drawings or diagrams or charts or whatever on the front of the card, that's kind of like a non-verbal stimulus. So you can have a tact-based see, say. But then if you have like words on the front or math facts and whatever, then that's like a verbal stimulus and the response is an intraverbal using Skinner's analysis. And then if you like decide, well, let's put this together in some kind of instructional design system, you could have verbal stimuli on the front of a card with an intraverbal type of response and you can have attack stimulus on the front of a card uh, with a verbal response, attack response of the same subject matter. For instance, if you want to like have like teach people how to, like, identify vehicles, like cars, trucks, automobiles, and so forth. Um, you could have, like, you know, the word car in the front of the card and the word automobile in the back, right? That's a in CSA interverbal. But then you can have a photograph of an automobile in the front and have, this, have the learner, you know, learn to see that and say car. And then you can test with, like, having, like, you know, the car in the front and uh, can they – or can they say automobile, right? That'd be one of the equivalence relations that you can test. So vice versa, you can have automobile on the front and you know, have them select like a picture of a car and they see that and say back you know, to car. They could have like, you know, you. That, that's where you can get really sophisticated with the instructional design and bringing in equivalence-based instruction so that, you know, you can then, you teach some of the channels, but then you test out other ones that you don't directly teach, and then you get those for free, so to speak. Right? We did that a lot when I was you know, working with uh, Aubrey Daniels, and later on with Easy Learn Systems. After, after I left Aubrey Daniels and Associates, um, how, how do you organize your instructional design that way so that you don't have to teach necessarily every you know, relationship? You can teach some, but then you get people just learning the other one or knowing the other ones already because, you know, you're taking advantage of, you know, this dimmest equivalence phenomenon.
0: Um, was there ability in your program to look at those derivations?
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, we, we created, like, the modules. And so, like, you can, like, you the person... Here, here's one of the things about instructional design that, that's part of my philosophy, at least, is yeah. that... Um, why, why make a person learn something if they already know it? Okay, yeah. so, like, I'm always an advocate. Of, if somebody knows something, can they test out? That way they don't have to waste their time or, or your time you know, going through a learning program about something they already know or something they already know how to do. And so that's what you can do. It's like, okay, if you, have a, if you have one module that teaches the so-called A to B relation, then you have another one that teaches the so-called B to C relation, then you have a third module where you can simply test the A-to-C relationship, one that's not been directly taught. So if you learn A-to-B and B-to-C, does the person know how to do A-to-C? And that's where you, you can test to see, did they get that learning, quote-unquote, for free? And if they didn't, so what? Then you got a module that they can go through uh, however many times they need to like get up to some kind of uh, fluency aim.
0: Did Dr. Greff... Teach
1: you this? No. Graf was more into um, just using the chart for just about anything. And he was also interested in using it for basic instructional design purposes. One of the things that Graf did that never has been like published on or replicated is that he realized that one of the things that we do or we just assume is that there are correct responses and incorrect responses, right? Um, He came up with this idea that he didn't even use correct or incorrect. He had like a four or five point system where, you know, if you were given a stimulus of some kind and you made an absolutely correct response, he called that, you know, a bullseye, like on a target, you know, the center of a target is a bullseye. But then there would be sometimes responses that a student would give that would be pretty close to being correct, right? But they weren't actually technically correct, but they were pretty close. I mean, as he put it metaphorically, they were in the ballpark. And then he had like responses where the, the student would give, where it was, they were clearly incorrect, but they, at least they were trying, right? Then there was another category where they didn't even try. They would just more or less skip the response or just say, skip, or move on. And then the fourth, or the next category, or last category would be like a no chance situation. So, you know, in the acceleration chart, you would have maybe a no chance day if, this, if your participant isn't present that day, so there's no chance for the behavior to occur. So he, his, his system was, he had bullseyes, he had close responses, as he called them, then he had tries and skips and no chances. And this has never really been investigated or replicated, as far as I know, But if anybody's out there searching for a really great thesis or doctoral dissertation idea, this would be one of them. This would be the one that I would put first. Um, So if you think about it, Mandy, okay, if you're you're making a response, beginning with a a stimulus, whether it's some kind of verbal stimulus or nonverbal stimulus, and you make what is considered or deemed to be an absolutely correct response, a bullseye, then there's nothing further that needs to be done, right, other than maybe to improve the fluency of that. What happens when you make a close response, okay? A close response is uh, part of the response might be correct, part of it might be incorrect. But what do you do? And typically in education, that's counted as an incorrect. You know, oh, you got that wrong. You were pretty close, but you got it wrong. And Graf turned it around. He said, well, we should be behaviors That's uh, an approximation to what we want. So let's reinforce that rather than punish it as incorrect, as counted as partially correct, if you will. It's close. We will give it credit, but not as much credit as a bullseye. So had a kind of like a, a multiplier scale. So if you got if you were given doing MEDS or program instruction items or whatever, you got a bullseye. That we really like worth eight points. Um, but if you got a close response, you were like partially correct or Almost there, he would still give you like four points for that particular item. If you tried, if you at least tried, these are all multipliers, right? So like times yeah. eight, times four, if you tried to give a response, you give a response, but it's incorrect. It's completely incorrect. He would still say, well, you know, that's a bit of an approximation to what we want, so I'm going to give that a times two multiplier. And then if you skipped, then that would be worth a times one, okay? And a no chance is no chance. So times one doesn't change anything, right? So times one multiplier, you know, it doesn't earn you anything. But if you make a commitment and at least try to give a response, you're going to get a little bit of credit. And if you get some of the response correct, it has some properties of being a correct response, then you're going to get more. And if you get a bullseye response, then that's, you get the maximum number of correct points. If you think about it, what Graffer is trying to do, and he has a lot of data on this, but I don't know what happened to it. That's shaping that's shaping yeah. behavior. You're rather than having the binary correct versus incorrect. Oh, you got that right? Oh, you got that wrong. Well, you know, he's saying, well, let's take this response. Does it have something that we can like work with? Does it have something we can build into more correct, more correct until we shape it to, you know, the outcome that we would like, you know, that would be beneficial for the learner. And I wasn't really able to implement that you know, in the courses that I ran, <laughs> although I did try it a couple of times. But I don't really have any, you know, data that are persuasive one way or the other about that. But I always thought that that was a, a really brilliant idea because it goes so against the education system, which divides everything into correct and incorrect. It doesn't make any allowance for, like, shaping of, a, of behavior.
0: How would you use the standard acceleration chart to analyze that?
1: Well, you count all those things separately. So we already on a set on a chart with count correct versus incorrect responses, right? Uh, with on an acceleration chart, you use a, a dot. To, by convention, you use a dot for counting correct responses and a little X, letter X for you know in, charting incorrect responses per minute. Well, he would like you you'd have like a, a dot for bullseyes and maybe a little square or something for close responses and the, the tries would get like uh, the X and then the uh, the skips would get some other symbol. Uh, and of course, no chance would be just that the day line on the chart wouldn't have any you know, dots or other symbols on them at all. So you chart those four things separately, which is what he did. And uh, here's, here's one of the things that they are independent. So one of the things that, Linsley, and Linsley's students all discovered back in the, I guess going back to the 60s, but mainly in the 70s, is that correct and incorrects are independent of one another, okay? So just because the correct response rate goes up does not mean the incorrect response rate automatically, therefore, goes down. Lindsley pointed this out in a paper at ABAI, my first ABAI in 1977, His paper is entitled, What We Know That uh, Ain't So. And he talked about the seesaw theory of learning. And this is where he brought in, like, learning pictures. And so one of his his graduate students, Pat All, in her class, uh, she had, you know, correct and incorrect responses recorded separately. And just because the correct responses go up, Sometimes the incorrect responses would go down, but sometimes they would flatline. Sometimes they would also go up, okay? And so they had a whole bunch of learning pictures. So on a chart, you know, if, if the correct response rate is going up, the incorrect response rate is also going up. That was called uphill. If the uh, correct responses were going up, the incorrect response rate was going down, that was called JAWS. You may have heard of that. Yes, And yeah. uh, then you would have, like, other ones uh, – you know, the worst case scenario is where the correct response rate was going down, the incorrect response rate is going up, and they would call that snowplow. When I mean, you talk about your skiing, and you put your skis together to uh, slow down. Uh, that's called snowplowing. So that's, uh, that's like the worst possible <laughs> scenario. But Pat All actually had data on that, and it's in the graph in Lindsley standard acceleration chart I don't remember what the rest of the title. It might be 2002 or something. Lindsley and Graf had a, a book. It's in a three-ring binder called "Standard Acceleration Chart" in 2002, and they show Pat All's uh, learning pictures in there. And so that, that one of the things that inductively that they learned was that these two things are independent. And then Lindsley went on beyond that and said, like everything's independent. So like. Your positive, negative feelings about something are independent of one another. You might have positive feelings about somebody, but you also might have negative feelings about somebody. Okay, but those can those accelerate can independently. Just because your positive feelings about somebody go up doesn't mean your negative feelings are necessarily going to go down either. They could flatline, they could also go up, or vice versa. So um, that's one of the findings of uh, precision teaching, that um, this. I guess there's a lot of data about it, but it's not been really presented or organized in a way that uh, probably a lot of uh, academicians or scholars would like to see that, you know, there's not really any whole lot of sources to cite other than that graph and Lindsley, which is basically a citation of Pat Hall's master's thesis. And, you know, there might be some scattered uh, support for that here and there elsewhere, in the literature but that's part of the problem with precision teaching is that a lot of it was just spread by word of mouth
0: yeah there's, there's a million questions i want to ask you right now <laughs> yes we've already covered a lot it's so interesting i just want to ask you i want to talk to you about the use of plain english and precision teaching and, mm-hmm. and your views on that i guess there's a lot you'd say too about our science of, of applied behavior analysis that prevents people outside of our field easily accessing it because of you know the technicality of language and but you shared some really interesting stuff with me by email on you know odds views on 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 using plain english could you talk to that
1: sure that's uh, one of my favorite things to talk about first of all we need to like step back for a second and, and just say plain english any language right you and i are talking yeah. in some variation of english right now me i'm using american english you're using australian english so we can pretty much communicate but, you know, if, you, if we were like in a Spanish-speaking culture, I would advocate using plain Spanish. Um, I would advocate using plain French or plain German or plain Tagalog or whatever the language is, right? Uh, part of the problem that Lindsley was dealing with is that the language that we tend to use carries a lot of baggage with it. Skinner, who was Lindsley's professor, right? Skinner was aware of this and something. his Skinner's book, Science and Human Behavior, he points out fairly early on in the book that the terms response and stimulus are problematical, but because of tradition, he was going to go with them anyway. And so we've are been saddled with uh, bad terminology from the get-go. I mean, Skinner had a chance to not use response. Uh, yeah. well, All these, like reinforcement, punishment, all those yeah. have excess connotations and denotations with them. Glensley created a a system he called Colab, C-O-L-A-B. And it was kind of meant to be kind of like a computer languages back then. You had COBOL, Fortran, BASIC as computer languages in the 50s and 60s. And Colab was invented in the 1960s and stood for Common Language for Analyzing Behavior. So you would have like a presented accelerating consequences well, for, for example a PAC a PAC, as instead of reinforcer presented accelerating consequence well the presented tells you what are you doing with it you presenting it uh, what does it do what's its effect it's accelerating and, and it's a consequence you could have a withdrawn accelerating consequence right uh WAC which replaces Negative reinforcement, right? So negative reinforcement—you're taking away something, so-called aversive—and the response rate goes up. And so, but that—that fact—that's that, that, one of the hardest things to teach anybody is, is negative reinforcement because Skinner meant with positive, and negative, he meant adding and subtracting. But I mean, most people think positive is, is good and negative is bad. And so, like negative reinforcement must be bad reinforcement or something that's really you're withdrawing some stimulus and the behavior accelerates and, you know, the stimulus that you're withdrawing is a consequence. But you can have, you know, presented accelerating stimuli that come before the behavior, but you can have withdrawn accelerating stimuli. And then Lindsay also talked about stabilizers and maintainers and things like that that we don't actually even talk about in behavior analysis, like in fluctuators. So what happens if you present some kind of consequence and the effect isn't really to increase the rate or to decrease the rate, but it causes the behavior to fluctuate more? The rate goes up and down, up and down, more so than, you know, in variability than it did before. That would be a fluctuator, right? And then, well, what happens if you present some kind of event or take away an event and the behavior that was highly variable stabilizes so it doesn't bounce around very much? You would call that a stabilizer. So there's a lot of collab that, nobody in behavior analysis is really like either aware of or looking at like we should be talking about stabilizers and fluctuators right and and maintainers like once you have a positive reinforcer or a presented accelerating consequence and then increases behavior to a certain level of rate of response it asymptotes it doesn't go any it doesn't keep going up up and up forever it kind of levels off and uh, maybe that's what you want. But, so that point, at that point, you don't need to call it a reinforcer anymore because it's not increasing behavior, but all it's doing is maintaining it. So it would be better to call that a maintainer. Okay, so Lindsay's whole idea with Colab was to, like, use as much plain English as possible, present an accelerating consequence. And there's nothing technical about that, right? It's presented, it's not taken away, it's accelerating, not decelerating. Because you have a presented decelerating consequence, too, as opposed to, like, calling it uh, a punisher. So, like, the word punish or punishment has all these connotations like, you know, well, that's harm, that's harmful, that's bad, that's evil, that's uh, hurtful, that's oppressive. Okay, that's all true. But part of that's just um, Skinner didn't mean that, right? He meant just that, you know, you, you present a consequence that decreases the rate of behavior. Uh, that it follows, okay? Well, that's what Lindsay was trying to do with Colab. He says, well, let's get rid of these terminology barriers and try our darndest to come up with, with language that we don't necessarily even have to teach people. It's understandable from the get-go. He had something called the is-does behavior equation, you know, that yeah. separates things out by what they are, by what they do. So is is what they are and does is what they do. And the, the does is all the technical jargon that's functionally defined. So in the, in the does you have your motivating operation, your contextual, you know, stimuli. Then you have a discriminative stimulus, and then you have a response and a contingency and a consequence. Okay, all that should be used only if you have like demonstrated functional control. So here you have people using words like stimulus. We don't even know if something is a stimulus yet. We have them using uh, you know, a consequence or like a reinforcement. All you know maybe at the moment is that it's an event that comes after behavior. And the is side of the equation you have like uh, you know, instead of uh, of a stimulus, you would have like an arranged event or an antecedent event. Excuse me. I think it's an antecedent event. Then you'd have like that might be followed by what do you call a movement cycle. Movement cycle is like a response, but we don't know that it's responsive yet to anything. Okay. It's just you know an action. You can describe it topographically if you want. And then you have an arrangement between that and a postcedent event or a subsequent event. And, you know, terminology varies a little bit here and there. Sometimes it's called an arranged event. All we know about an arranged event or Postcedent or subsequent event is that that's something that comes after the behavior, after the movement cycle. We don't attribute any function to that until we have determined that there's a function. So, this is to keep people from saying, like, well, gee, Dr. Ashman, I tried the reinforcer and didn't work. And I always would say, well, every reinforcer in the history of this planet has always worked by definition. <laughs> okay, you may have tried a subsequent event or a postcedent that didn't work, and nothing wrong with that, just try a different one, right? But, you know, a reinforcer means that you have something by definition that's working. The only way you can do that is uh, to have some evidence of its function that it's working. The evidence in that case would be, does it increase the rate of response? If it does, then it's a reinforcer. But what happens if you have a so-called reinforcer and the response rate doesn't go up? Or worse, it goes down. So, in fact, Lindsley talked about that in is, uh, in the book Let's Try Doing Something Else Kind of Thing, published in 1971, where he talked about that where you could have, like, uh, you think you're using a reinforcer, but it's actually causing the behavior rates to go down or to not go up. Okay, so how do you deal with that? So it's a language problem. And, you know, he tried coming overcoming things like, There's a lot of chart terminology, like if you are charting behavior, right, and you have your you're in your baseline condition, or he called it before condition, before, so you just have a whole bunch of dots in your baseline, and then you put your intervention in, and then the behavior zooms way up, times ten, and then stays up there at the higher frequency. Well, in in statistics, that's called a step function, and then if you if the Trend line changes, that's called a vector shift. So like if if you're a flat line going across the baseline, and you may or may not have a frequency increase or decrease, but if the acceleration changes, then you have what's called a vector shift. Okay, now Lindsay was very sensitive to students learning or trying to learn this. What the heck is a vector shift or a step function? How do you separate those out? So step functions, he said, we'll call that a jump. The behavior is going along, you do some intervention, and then the frequency jumps up so or jumps down, right? Or doesn't jump at all. So that could be one effect. Then if the trend line changes, the trend line is you know, going one way in your baseline or whatever, and then it turns and it's turning up or turning down, you can call that a turn. Okay, so you have a jump up in frequency or turn up in frequency or turn down, uh, excuse me, turn up or turn down in acceleration. And so that kind of terminology, I found myself when I was teaching that, that students could relate to jumps and turns more easily than they could to step functions and vector shifts, for instance. So there's a lot of things like that. He suggested using more plain English. He kind of abandoned Colab after a while because it seemed to be too difficult to teach people, but he still kept at it. So like, there's an article in general applied behavior analysis that Linsley had, a rare article in Java for him, around 1991, 92, on technical, from technical jargon to plain English for application, I think is the title. And he had a table there where list, lists, you know, the different types of terminology that they tried out over the years. In fact, precision teaching itself as a term is a euphemism. Did you know that?
0: I had to look up the meaning of that word, <laughs> When you send that
1: to me, do you want to explain that. Yeah, well, a euphemism is a a better-sounding word. You know, it has less baggage or less controversy than other terms. Back in the nineteen sixties, there was this emerging field called behavior modification, right? Yeah, B mod for short. And some of it was based on Skinner. Some of it was based on Beowulf and Risley's version of ABA. But a lot of it included things like electroshock therapy, drug interventions, restraints, institutionalization, other psychiatric kinds of interventions for modifying behavior, a lot of which, you know, those of us in behavior analysis really don't want to be associated too much with, right? I don't think electroshock therapy is probably the best way to go, for instance. So, like, B-MOD was becoming conflated with... uh, all these bad connotations. So the writing was on the wall. And so some people said, well, we, we don't do behavior modification. We do behavior analysis. Lindsley saw the writing on the wall and said, well, you know, we don't do behavior modification either. We do precision teaching. Now, if you're a behaviorist, what's the definition of teaching? It's changing behavior. Uh, Dr. Vargas, Ernie Vargas always said, it's arranged in the circumstances under which behavior changes over time. It's what teaching is. So we're still there. We're still modifying behavior, right? But we're calling it teaching. And Leslie's case is saying, "Well, it's, it's precision teaching because we're measuring the rate of response and also the change in rate of response over time." That's all precision teaching is. It's just a euphemism for B mod, but without all the negative, excess connotations and baggage that B mod has to it.
0: Why didn't CoLab succeed and? Is there anywhere, I guess in precision teaching, they're still using a lot of plain English terms, but um, is there any hope for, you know, this plain English or CoLab or anything to to filter its way anywhere? Do you think there's
1: well, any? Well, would have to address what happened with CoLab, and he's not around to do that. Uh, his yeah. students like Abigail and Pat McGreevy and some others might be able to tell you more than what I can. But I remember... It- 20 years ago, we had like a standard acceleration listserv. I think it technically still exists, but it was pretty vibrant and active back 20 years ago. Lindsay was participating on that too. And I was like a you know, like really eager advocate of collab. <laughs> he was saying, uh, you know, knock it off, John. I mean, we, it, it never took. Uh, it was just hard enough just to get people to start charting, okay, using the chart. But I, I still advocate for it. I, I think that you know the logic of it makes more sense than a lot of mainstream behavioral terminology does because it doesn't have all the excess baggage with it. Yeah, and, I, uh, I really
0: relate to that because mm-hmm. you know one of my passions, because of my journey, is parent training, and you know they struggle so much with those terms. Mm-hmm. And I, I realize now, with a few of the things that you said, it's like I really struggle, you know, with the definition of positive reinforcer because. As you say, at some point the behavior is no longer increasing, and parents really struggle with those kind of distinctions. So I'm I'm really excited to take away what some of what you've said today and incorporate it into my parent training, um, because they don't need technical terms; they just need to understand what's occurring with their children.
1: Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Um, there's, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of history there that really, you know, it's, it's on the verge of just getting lost. You know when you know, people don't use it, and so they they lose it. And there's a lot of uh, I, I, if I if I could rename it, rename it, I wouldn't even use the word behavior anymore. Yeah. Some years ago, when I was like setting up some comprehensive exam questions for my for the PhD students, yeah. um, I had a presentation on being conceptually systematic, and there were like other names for the field that. That have been floated around here. They're way back 100 years ago, there was this uh, psychologist or behaviorist named Walter Hunter who suggested the name anthroponymy, kind of like astronomy, anthroponymy as the name of the field, okay? And that never took off, okay? Ernie and Julie Vargas have suggested the name behaviorology. That still has a problem with behavior, but it's behaviorology. Everybody knows that ology means study of. (laughs) Robert Epstein suggested the name praxis as kind of like, it looks almost like physics praxis as kind of a name for the field. That never went anywhere. Uh, Joe Lang has suggested contingency analysis for the field because actually that's what we actually look at is behavior contingencies the contingent relationship between behavior and consequences and then that that two-term contingency becoming coming under stimulus control of an antecedent event or condition that's what we're really are looking at not behavior we're not really analyzing behavior so Lang suggested contingency analysis there might be some other names that you know people could come up with I kind of like precision teaching even though it doesn't necessarily mean teaching anymore right I mean if you're just Changing any behavior that has a frequency, you're doing precision teaching, or you can be. You probably want to put it on an acceleration chart so you can see that the standard changes to trend over time, which nobody does in you know mainstream behavior analysis, which I find problematical.
0: You, you want to jump into that because I really want to hear what you have to say about the state of ABA and uh, where we are in our field, the criticisms that um, you know ABA is coming under, you know, in the, in the I mean, world of autism and, and possibly, you know, the, the the large number of people that, myself included, that are, you know, coming out as BCBAs with a lack of understanding of some of the things that you've mentioned today.
1: First of all, I'm, I'm retired now, so I feel like I have a little more freedom of speech than, than when I was working. So, like, you know, they can't really fire me for... You know, speak in my mind now, or you know, they can't really boot me out of ABAI because presently I'm not a member and I let my BCBA lapse in June because in I don't need it anymore. So, like, and you know, they can't like take that away from me because I don't have it anymore. So, with that caveat in mind, um, you know, one of the things I was thinking about earlier today was like, you know, last year in January, right before COVID really hit the scene, there was this big announcement by the BCBA that they would be withdrawing their international support. You might recall that.
0: Oh, yeah, and, yeah, I I'm impacted by that, yeah.
1: Yeah, and so that, you know, that was like a big controversial topic, and the rationale that they gave was that, well, they couldn't really support a whole bunch of different languages, uh, you know, for all the materials, tests, objectives, the whole nine yards. It would just be too costly. And so they just limited the BCBA to, you know, Americans in the United States and Canadians in Canada. And I'm thinking, they were saying that, when well, they just want to limit it to, like, you know, English language. I'm thinking, well, hello, over in England, don't they speak English? In Australia,
0: we still speak English. Yeah,
1: New Zealand. But then you realize that... English is an official language, like in India, for instance, and it's an official language of Nigeria. And uh, you go to a lot of European countries, and it's if, if it's not an official language, it's certainly people's second language or third language. And so, okay, maybe if we just include English and Spanish, then you can include Mexico, right? When Mexico, it's they're including Canada, they're not including all of North America. They're not including Mexico. But if you included Spanish, then you would have the Philippines and all of South America, well, except for Brazil, you know, Portuguese. But just two or three languages, you, you know, cover the entire planet, basically. This, that, that, that rationale never made any sense to me, okay? I, I still don't understand exactly why. But so they were drawing that international support. And I thought that was like, you know, I was on the side of all the international people that were, like, upset. (laughs) That's one of the reasons why, you know, I didn't feel particularly enthusiastic about renewing my BCBA. I did another podcast about a month ago, and they were asking me, well, what is applied behavior analysis? And I said, well, my answer was that nobody knows. And the reason for that is that I was looking through the BCBA's website because they have the data there of how many BCBAs there are for all, all different ranks. So you have like BCBADs, the, the doctorates, that's what I was, you know, BCBAs, BCABAs, and then RFTs. Not, not, not excuse me, RBTs, RFTs, yeah, relational. We get to RFTs. <laughs> yes. uh, RBTs. After a while, yeah. all these uh, acronyms become like a, a word salad. But, you know, RBTs, there were 110,000 RBTs, and then you add them all up, though, across these different certifications, and there's 165,000 people now with some kind of certification in behavior analysis. And if you're a military person, that's like 16 divisions of uh, troops, right? I mean, that's like, <laughs> you know, if you had to, like, fill a battlefield, then that's an awful lot of people. Well... Any given person, I was was thinking, at most, I mean, you probably know a few dozen behavior analysts, maybe at most, uh, you certainly don't know 10,000, 16,000, which would be 10% of them. I don't either. But even if those, let's say you know fairly well 100 people who have some level of certification. Well, you're not there every day. You don't know what they're doing day in and day out with their clients. You don't know what the incident rate is of of ethical lapses, problems, competence. Um, You're assuming that maybe that because a person has a certain certification that they actually are competent at a certain level, and they may or may not be, but you're not there witnessing what they're doing. Nobody is. And so there's probably an awful lot that's going on out there somewhere under the name of behavior analysis without anybody knowing what any particular person is doing with a client at any given time. Unless, you know, there's a, you know observer or maybe a camera or something observing it. So we have a huge field. Yeah, we can define it on paper. If you want to define on paper what ABA is, the Cooper book's a great book for that, right? Now, Cooper always likes to go around and say that me, Eshelman, was his chart parents. And a lot of people, he says that. So I taught him, I guess, the, the chart. But the uh, point is that Cooper book is, uh, you know, described on paper really well what the field is. And there's, uh, there's hundreds and hundreds of journal articles and other textbooks and books and publications and videos and articles and blogs and podcasts and so forth that all describe what ABA is. But in the final analysis, there's the 165,000 just in the United States and Canada alone who are out there doing something, and nobody really – is they're observing them doing it, and so we don't know exactly what's being done in the name of behavior analysis. And I think my speculation is that that's partially why there's now some pushback appearing against ABA in some parts of the communities that ABA strives to serve, okay? And some of it may be just negative verbal behavior of some kind, but I don't think all of it is. And I think that there's some you know, legitimate concerns, complaints that people have. And those are just now, you know, the last two or three years coming to the forefront. Part of the reason, I think, is that this is something Ernie Vargas once warned about back in the 1980s when all this professional stuff was first coming up. He was saying, well, you know, when you grow too fast, you bring in too many people, and people have different agendas, different objectives, different competencies, different levels of understanding, Different ethical sensibilities, and how do you control for all that? That's what happened with behavior mod back in the '60s. So we already been through something similar to that, or the same thing happened with the program instruction and teaching machines movement. Uh, There was around 1960 that first got, you know, taking off, and by the end of the decade, it reached its peak, and then after about 1970, it peaked and People stopped using program instruction in in mainstream education because too many people jumped on that bandwagon without knowing the basic science. So here we now have 165,000 certificates, and any given person in the field doesn't know more than what a handful of any other people are doing. So there's that. There's the international issue that I was talking about, the different editions of the task list. The earliest task list I, I got was from Chuck Merbert's which was the second edition, which is really, in my opinion, the best. Then, you know, in 2007, we had the third edition it you know, showed up in the Cooper book. And that was pretty good. The third edition still said, use precision teaching, use direct instruction, use standard acceleration charts. I mean, those aren't well-written objectives. You know, what do you mean by use? But at least they were still in there. Then by the fourth edition, most of that was gone, okay, the the precision teaching things were dropping out, the use acceleration charts had dropped out, direct instruction was dropping out of the task list, so it was becoming more reduced in terms of what the definition of behavior analysis is, and then from that to the fifth edition, it was even more streamlined, and I was actually there, we were having a department meeting at the Chicago School at few years ago when the fifth edition was first being sent around in kind of a draft form. And we noticed all the acquisition objectives said more or less vanished, I'm like, okay, so it's just now behavior reduction, Well, that's all we're doing is reducing behavior. I think there was some pushback. I mean, I'm not, I can't say for sure, because some of those acquisition objectives got put back in for the final version of the fifth edition. But there's you know all all that sort of stuff going on, and I'm not saying that that is functionally related to some of these other issues or problems because that would be beyond my ability to like support with any evidence. But it's my hunch. Okay, I'm guessing it's a speculation that that probably has had some role in like you know behavior analysis even you know, being. Not always well received, to put it mildly. Uh, you have yeah,
0: a- I, I see that, um, John. I see that show up here in a in a way that um, we have an insurance scheme that came in a few years ago in Australia. and It's a groundbreaking for us because it's the first time where there is you know funding available for disability really. Mm-hmm. And it used to be twelve thousand dollars across two years for early intervention for autism, like twelve thousand dollars. You know, you barely you barely open a door for that really. And now, you know, people can get more significant funding. But, you know, we have these people called planners here where you go along and you write a plan for a child. And many of those planners will say, um, oh, no, we don't like ABA. (laughs) Don't mention ABA in the plan. Or parents will come to me and say, please don't mention anything about ABA in your therapy progress report. Because the government doesn't like ABA. (laughs) And so, yeah, I see that showing up right at the front line where my parents want to, we talk about precision teaching um, because nobody knows that that comes from behaviour analysis. And, you know, when you show officials' charts and data, you know, we we talk about precision teaching, that's a lot better received than than ABA. They have seen, at least uh, in their experience, that ABA looks like holding a kid in a chair, hand over hand prompting, uh, you know,
1: basically, poor teaching is is what they think ABA is. Well, see that that's that's sad to me because that's the, you brought up another good point uh, about the you know a lot of this is responsive to the financial contingencies. So here in the in the United States, for instance, basically, people are very dependent upon insurance companies for remuneration. You know that you know getting paid, and so. It's just like anything else. I mean, the insurance companies, they're in it for, as a business to make money. And it's not exactly clear to me how, you know, concerned they are about the human condition or the societal condition versus, you know, how do we maximize profits. And I'm not sure that those are always compatible objectives. Yeah. So, you know, that that's another thing here about behavior analysis is that there are probably people that want to, like, go beyond certain things. But, you know, you run into all sorts of issues, like some of which I can understand not wanting to go beyond. Like if someone wants to do, like, chelation therapy, well, I don't, that may or may not work. I don't see the, the hard evidence of that. But that's beyond the scope of, uh, you know, ABA. And I wouldn't necessarily advocate doing that. But, you know, if you want to, like, use acceleration chart and people say, well, but that's not on the task list or that was taken off the task list. Well, now we're talking about something that's not necessarily all that controversial, right? I mean, it's not the same level as, like, facilitated communication or some of the other so-called methods that people have, you know, presented as so-called autism treatments. By the way, I don't like the word treatment either. I mean, I think that... uh, diminishes uh, both people in the situation uh, in terms of how we you know, approach things. But, you know, that's what people do.
0: On the use of the word treatment?
1: Or any of that. I mean, the insurance, yeah. the the control of the field by outside influences.
0: I yeah. mean, I guess it's the reason I'm doing this podcast, John, and I'm just so grateful to talk to you because, um, you know, we both have a friend called Bob Washam, and mm-hmm. I guess – I was, got very lucky in doing this podcast and that he reached out to me. And, you know, I'm, I'm saying things from a less experienced background because I'm a BCBA that came to this field because of my passion for autism. And I just got very lucky in coming in contact with precision teaching. But um, I guess I feel very saddened by yeah. the state of affairs where I've seen incredible progress through the application of whatever you want to call it precision teaching or ABA in so many kids that are severely impacted and yet i have parents saying please don't mention in your report that you do aba i guess <laughs> you ask me what my response is I, i'm sad you know i'm i'm deeply sad that i have to say that i'm i'm doing something that you know doesn't come from a science that i studied and, and know to be so impactful and that i'm having to tread carefully in the use of those terms and so yeah i guess i'm saddened and i'm i'm looking for answers and it's why i'm talking to you like and why I'm talking to other people about what can we do with this very precious technology for want of a better word, um, that's so impactful and has the ability to really make profound improvements in people that really need it. What can we do as motivated people to to stop what's occurring in the field of, of people outside our field, like speech pathologists and, and OTs and things like that saying, It's a horrible science, stay away from it, we never want to do it, we don't want to be associated with behavioralists, you know. What, what hope is there to, um, to take these incredible procedures we have and change the world with them? That's why I'm talking to you.
1: <laughs> I, I, I appreciate that, and I wish I had a bunch <laughs> of answers, and unfortunately I don't. But what I could probably suggest is that, you know, to the extent that precision teaching can maintain some independence, it, it always was somewhat independent of, of ABA. And because they, they both come from different lineages and they only partially overlap, precision teaching is it's about a lot of positive things, right? I mean, you're, we're teaching, okay? So we want we, we or we call our clients learners, and uh, we don't even call them necessarily clients. And some I guess some people do, but you know, I I don't and. You know, uh, it's a kid. It's a it's a child. It's a human being. It's, uh, you know, at most I would say that they're a learner or something, if you want to pin a label on somebody. Uh, but we get caught up with these labels, right? And, yeah. you know, there's a whole field of psychology and psychiatry that is obsessed with uh, diagnosing people. So, like, you know, DSM keeps expanding every edition. So, like, pretty soon every single behavior everybody on the planet does is going to be that Kind of, there's
0: something.
1: Like yeah, and so I, I'd like to to bypass that. Okay, and that's where the the, the play in English comes back into play. Um, we don't have to talk about reinforcers. You can talk about presented accelerating consequences. We can try bringing back collab. Okay, you know, if someone says that. I mean, what's the deal? I mean, that's all it does. It's a consequence that it you know accelerates behavior up to some level. And then, you know, it becomes a maintainer or something. That might be one way out. Okay, the way out. You're looking for an exit. I guess in Australia, instead of exit signs, you have way out signs, right? (laughs) Okay. And uh, so that's one way out of this conundrum. Another one is like Dr. Mervitz already said, put it on a chart. Okay, so count it. Okay, pinpoint the behavior, which is hard to do, by the way. Pinpoint behavior, record it, count it, and then if you try to change it, uh, then you can try try again if your changing procedure it doesn't work. So if you, if you say change it and try try again, that's different from saying, well, we need to manipulate the independent variable, which is what you're doing when you try try again, but we can uh, not have to necessarily use some of that jargon that doesn't. Resonate well with uh, the general population, but yet still be precise and still refer to the same behavioral processes and procedures. That's that's possibly you know one way out of this situation. I, mean, I, I can't Can see for sure.
0: Can I ask you another question then? And this might be a little bit controversial. So I think I align with what you say there. I have found uh, precision teaching to be I guess I, I'm in love with precision teaching, if that's a thing. What can you say about the precision teaching community and the state of, um, of PT and where it's at and, and the hope for precision teaching?
1: Well, I, you know, in, in general remain optimistic. I mean, I just recently ran for being on the board of directors of the Acceleration Society, and it lost. I came in third place, and they were, the first two people got in, and there were four candidates, so I came in third Okay. And, you know, I was a little, wasn't was really all that brought down by that because, you know, speaking of Bob, he was the one who nominated me. It wasn't like, you know, I was trying to like run and get in there. Um, in general, I think that the people in, in precision teaching field, to the extent that they can remain, you know, keep a perspective that of, based on precision teaching... Are doing well, doing good, uh, and and are in a position to do well and to to do good. So you know, to the extent that you know, we promote like the chart, how to use it, you know what it's, what it can do, what it can't do. You know, but not, but not be dogmatic about it. Like back to my mentor, Doctor Graf. Graf had something he called three view or three frame, and so he said he was a big advocate of putting the same data onto a acceleration chart as onto, you know, maybe an add-subtract chart, just so you can see what the differences are. Doesn't mean that necessarily you always have to say, well, the acceleration chart is always 100% better than other visual displays, and that's true. In fact, Don Bear said that rate of response is just one measure out of many, and not always the best, and he was right. Like, if if I'm trying to lose weight, I will look at a bar graph or a regular line graph and an a subtract chart of like weight in pounds or grams or something, not looking at frequency so much, okay? So as long as we are like, you know, kind of respecting what the background is of precision teaching, what its main purpose was and using the actual chart and not being dogmatic about any of this and being willing to like graph things other ways, too. And that That's the least dogmatic you can be, I think. There might be a fighting chance for this to, like, have some impact, have it work or something. I'm not into the idea any longer of how can I best sell the chart or sell PT to people. That's, like, in the area of rhetoric. I'm interested in finding out, what do we know about human behavior? What do we know about human learning? More on the science side of things. But there are ways of probably advocating for PT that uh, others are better at doing. I think that Carl Binder is one of the best speakers ever, let alone just being a speaker in precision teaching and on the chart. Your recent podcast person, Abigail Calkin, is really a, a great you know, advocate of uh, you know how do we get people to, to chart. And she's even gotten people to chart or. What we call inner behavior, right? Urges yeah. and so forth, and or private thoughts or feelings. I mean, there's so much more that we can do just beyond counting just operant behavior. Even, I mean, like if you're counting feelings, you're counting more like respondent behaviors or something, or counting anything. Right? And you put it on a chart, as Dr. Mervitz would say, and let that guide you. Right? I mean two kids with autism don't necessarily have the same problems or, or, or challenges. They, they might have different ones and they might have, you might have different uh, ways of trying to like resolve those problems or issues, uh, you know, different kinds of training methods or something. And so that's another thing that Lindsay always talked about was that behavior is very specific. You know, it's not general. It's also unique and not common. Okay. So, the teaching methods, materials, the whole nine yards of that needs to be unique for each Each learner brings with them unique individual needs. So your learner might have some similar needs to somebody else's learner, but also some different ones, okay? But behavior analysis and a lot of other fields are based around everything being general and common as opposed to being specific and unique. If you think about it, I mean... Here in the United States, if you want to take, like, a vitamin, right, they say, well, you know, you need this much vitamin C as a recommended daily allowance. <laughs> okay. So you mean to tell me that that's the same for a 100-pound person and a 250-pound person? Is, you know, I don't, that's, that's a common or a generalized solution for very specific and unique different kinds of situations of needs. It would be like if you had a society which had one shoe size, okay? I mean, that would be very common and general, but not unique, right? You wouldn't address the unique needs of each learner. But with a chart, you can do that, right? Yeah. And so the important point about a chart is not just what's on the grid of the chart, but also down the blanks, like, you know, the name of the learner, how old are they, what other label do they have, what's the pinpoint of the behavior. A lot of people don't know how to pinpoint behavior. They end up using gerunds, like ing words, when they should be talking about first person present tense types of uh, language. Yeah. You know, twist knob, where the knob twisting, right? So I can count each time a person twists a knob, twist knob, or writes letter, like a letter of an alphabet, writes letter, as opposed to writing. Okay, that writing would not be a good pinpoint, but writes letter writes letter of alphabet would be a pretty good pinpoint. And that, that that can be stuff that leads to solutions. Like, for instance, like Carl Binder talks about fluency builders and fluency blockers. I always taught my students about all that stuff too, by the way. And that's very true and relevant. So, like, you know, if you're teaching somebody to do math facts and they have to write answers, but their writing skills Are such that they can't really write loops or straight lines, and so they they can't write numerals very well. By by that I mean that so they and other people can read them. Um, Well, then you can go back to, like, what Elizabeth Houghton is recommending, which is, like, okay, let's just focus on the tool skill or the earlier skill, component skill, of uh, just writing loops and getting better at writing loops because a lot of numerals have loops in them, right? Like a six has a loop in it, and eight has a couple of loops. Whereas a seven's got a couple of straight lines, okay? So we just get practice in drawing vertical or lines or horizontal lines, you know, short little line segments, get fluent at that. And just on a free write or something. To the point where you can combine these things together and produce like a, a numeral seven or a numeral eight or something and get fluent at that. That's what a chart can help you do because you know you can sing where the disc fluencies are, because it's gonna stand out as frequencies and you can see those and at the very least you can go back and say well let's let's look at this component skill more closely and see if we can change that and to work on improving it or something so that's what a chart enables you to do so you have the your kid there's unique learner they might have a tool skill a component skill issue that another learner may not have right yeah. so that's what i meant earlier about you know you can start at different points in the in a curriculum you, You know, if you can let somebody test out of a a unit of an instruction rather than have to force them through a, a, you know, the the guidebook says use this program, you have to run this program. Well, the kid already knows how to do the skill. You know, why you kind of like punish them for for their accomplishments by just mindlessly running through through a program because that's what the book says to do. But a chart might tell you, you know, okay, we. We have to do this or we don't have to do this. So we need to add something or we need to take something away. We need to slice back or, s- or step back or something to an earlier skill, work on some earlier component fluencies or something. That's what the chart, what precision teaching really gets you. Is But then that, that means like if you're a teacher and you have a classroom full of kids and you have to be like Morningside and you know, if you've got 10 kids in the classroom, each kid's got 20 pinpoints, that means that uh, – the what, you got 200 charts? Yeah. You have a three-ring binder with 200 charts in it. That's where the standardization comes into being beneficial because you can, <laughs> as an administrator or a teacher, you can flip through those charts and, and see at a glance what's going on and what's happening, what's not happening. And you can make recommendations and execute probably fairly well decisions that you wouldn't be able to make if you eat. You wouldn't even be able to do any of this if you had to use idiosyncratic charts. Okay, yeah. you had a different.
0: The other thing is, is that the teachers are seeing that data as it almost as it occurs on a chart.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, but the you- thing these days is computer-based charting. But the thing is, either way, putting things on a chart on a standard yeah. chart that enables and empowers and ensures a lot of uh, you know rapid decision making. <laughs>
0: I wanted to make a comment to that because my jump into precision teaching is when I was living in Indiana and um, I wanted to go and meet Karen Pryor. She's one of my heroes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, um, yeah, I was fascinated by one of the earliest papers I read was The Creative Porpoise when my daughter was first diagnosed and I was so fascinated about novelty and creativity and, you know, complete lack of that in what I was observing in my second child compared to my first Anyway, so that's – I was in Indiana in the middle of winter, which you would understand for an Australian was very challenging. It was I think it was the coldest winter on record, and, um, or one of them for 100 years or something, and I ended up um, going to see Karen at IPTC in Chicago in 2014, and that changed the trajectory of my life because even though I'd done my BCBA and I had heard Dr. Kim speak about chatting through FIT, so I had some experience with, with precision teaching, and I, I, I met – some precision teachers in indiana but anyway i ended up at ipTC and um met dr kim and found my way to precision teaching which changed the trajectory of my life but one of the first things she did was say to me because i had i was still supervising children in australia even when i was living in america using the vb map and and you know putting things on a a stretch to fill graph and she said why don't you just as a first step why don't you just put what you're doing on a chart And that's what I did. And so I just learnt to chart and I was still doing discrete trial instruction and I took what I did and I put it on a chart. And, yeah, I realised that my kids weren't making a lot of progress. (laughs) It didn't take me long to say, wow, these are very flat lines that I have here. And that really changed everything for me and for the parents that I worked with as well because it was very easy to show them what was occurring. I think that was her advice to me. Put it on a chart. She didn't say, stop doing discrete trial instructions, yeah. stop doing what you're doing, move mm-hmm. away from the VB map. She just said, put on a chart. Um, and that, I guess, got me asking a lot of questions about what I was doing. So I, I love that. It feels like a topic for um, another podcast, put on a chart. You mentioned pinpointing, and I'm so interested to ask you some questions about that as well. I wonder if we can finish off by saying something about people that because what I'm really hoping to capture in this podcast is young behavioural analysts that are in traditional ABA programs somewhere that may have an interest in precision teaching. I think that's a big part of our audience, probably about 80% of our audience. Young people that have heard about precision teaching or interested in precision teaching and trying to learn more. I wonder if there's anything you can say to them about what they could do at this point in time in their lives to, to learn more about precision teaching and charting?
1: Well, there's actually quite a bit. I mean, there's yeah. a Precision Teaching San Acceleration Society Facebook page that they can certainly join. It's fairly active. Uh, people are always asking questions or making comments and so forth. Carl Binder, whom I mentioned earlier, has a, a fluency page on Facebook Standard Celeration Society has its own celebration.org website. Okay. Yeah. Carl Binder has uh, a website, not exactly sure what it is offhand, fluency.com or something. Fluency.org. Yeah, fluency.org. And that has like all of Lindsley's uh, published papers, including some pre- presented papers on it. That you know, it also includes a lot of other publications in precision teaching and uh, presentations I think some videos and so forth. There are a lot of uh, YouTube videos of uh, precision teaching in action. I know that Richard McManus has uh, some YouTube videos that are pretty good as far as going through the, what precision teaching is but there's also ones that uh, show how to do a, a one-minute timing with staff meds or something. A bunch of those that uh, Jack Amon, who is Steve Graff's brother in law, late Steve Graff's brother in law, put up on YouTube all of you know, there were like 30 different videos of Lindsley's final workshop at ABAI. Um, oh, wow. So there's a whole, you know, so if people want to learn precision teaching from Lindsay himself, uh, you can do that. Uh, Amon also has stevegraff.org, which is, has all Doctor Graf's publications and a lot of his presentations <laughs> and a bunch of charts that he did, as well as a few handful of videos, which would be a useful resource. Um, there's a number of books. Doctor Kabina has written, you know, he wrote the precision teaching book. He wrote a follow up to that, which I have but I don't recall the title offhand. It's back in my office.
0: Nights because
1: it's, it's a recent publication. Yeah, and then uh, he's actually got a couple of recent publications. There's uh, a book by uh, Malcolm Neely put together on precision teaching that's fairly recent. There's, of course, the Handbook of the Standard Acceleration Chart, which you can go to like the Cambridge Center website and it's in the bookstore there. Uh, that's actually, if you want to learn how to, you know, what the chart is all about. Pennypacker, Gutierrez, and Lindsley are the authors of the current edition. So that would be highly recommended. The Cooper book actually mentions and covers some things about the acceleration charts. If you're, if you're going to ABA and you're using the Cooper book anyway, that would be like a... Uh, it has a, a good little section on the chart uh, just in that source. And... uh <laughs> Cooper made sure that I would go into all the different editions of the book. There are some other books and sources that are floating around. Uh, There's a still a celebration listserv by email. It's not very active, maybe only a handful of messages per year now. So there's actually quite a few resources out there in various ways. There are still some university programs and courses that at least in the United States, that people can enroll in and get some kind of like charting background uh, covered.
0: Can you name any of those programs?
1: Well, I'm I'm fairly sure that uh, at uh, the Chicago School that some of the, the faculty there are, are still or may still be teaching some some chart related or precision teaching related uh, matters because some of the faculty there were people who were my students and got their PhDs at the Chicago School and stayed on as faculty, so there might be some opportunities there. And Rick Cabina's at Penn State, Pennsylvania State University, University of excuse me, Penn State, it's not University of it's Penn State University, PSU, that uh, I think he's still, you know, running some courses there. I'm not actually sure about where else and what else. I mean, that would have to be something that uh, I think Malcolm Neely, in his book, and also on Facebook, he tries to like follow this. Like, where what sites are using the chart? What sites are teaching the chart? So that would be probably a first resource. Check would be you know Malcolm Neely's latest. I think
0: he also publishes a list of centers around the world right? yes. that um, corporate position teaching as well. So I'm going to put all of those things in the show notes. That's that's so awesome. I just thought exactly. of like I want to ask you a favor to finish off. Would you consider helping me put together some SAF meds incorporating CoLab?
1: Oh, uh, sure. I mean, you know, the, do you have any background on CoLab itself? I mean, Lindsley had several kinds of papers on that. I know that uh, these are on Carl Binder's org site. Um, right. So I would recommend downloading those and then, reading through them. Some of them are like transcriptions of conference presentations or workshops. So they're not necessarily have all the citations and references and so forth in them, but that's okay, in my opinion. But, you know, that would be... Lindsay's uh, 1964 paper uh, on direct measurement prosthesis of what he called retarded behavior actually mentions an early version of this is-does-operant equation and then some of the other contributions since that time also you know, delve into that. So those would be some sources to uh, to take a look at. I'm not sure what what your objectives would be for like the SAF meds, but if you're trying to like maybe interpret from ABA to like co-authorized yeah. person,
0: if nothing else for my parent training because you know in particular you mentioned this that negative reinforcement is the hardest thing to teach to parents oh, yeah uh, you want to teach you know something good to a a child and we're going to you know try and design you know negative reinforcement as the reinforcer that's a very difficult concept for a parent to wrap their head around so i'm just very interested in seeing if i can incorporate that to some of my parent training and some people i think will be very interested in that so i'm going to try and put together a list of sac nets and uh, share them with this audience at least um i've been Really excited to hear what you had to say about that and so many other things. And on that note, I'm going to draw uh, very sadly because there's so many things I would love to talk to you about this episode to a close and hope that you'll come back and share more of your incredible knowledge and, (laughs) you know, the way you you speak about many things that are so technical. Um, You can imagine from my perspective I was a little bit daunted about interviewing you because when I got your – summary resume (laughs) and read through it you know it's overwhelming uh the amount of (laughs) that you have but it's been so easy to talk to you and so uh such a pleasure and um it's been just an absolute delight I, i can't thank you enough for your time given that you've just moved house you moved um what did you call the term that you have uh that in moving what did you call that
1: uh, well it's not exactly totally moving. We're calling it Snowbird. Snowbird. That, that's 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 someone who who lives up north and then goes down to some southern state like Florida or Texas or Arizona for the for the winter. The winter's yeah. in these latitudes are less harsh than they are right back up in the north of the you know, American continent. And US oh, yes, yeah. Chicago
0: two thousand fourteen it's burned in my memory. I remember yeah. getting a um taking a tour in a, you know, like a double-decker bus and the roof was open. It was like, I'm trying
1: to remember the date now. <laughs> I it would really
0: be IPTC. So like November, <laughs> November. Mm-hmm. Was, I just don't ever remember being that cold before.
1: <laughs> well, so, you know, that's, uh, yeah, you're way down in the Southern hemisphere. So you would think that Perth being really far South would be cold in the winter time, but when I was there it was never really all that cold. I mean, first thing i saw when i got off the airplane was like okay there's palm trees outside here and that's not associated with like bitterly cold weather i think all the all your snow and skiing slopes are in like eastern australia right we yeah, have some mountains east.
0: yeah we're on the edge of the desert yeah and right right on the ocean so yeah when it's so today i guess it's going to be a maximum of 22 but you know i'll be wearing a ski jacket Oh, I, don't, I don't even know how that translates. <laughs> Let's
1: just say 70, and, yeah, I'll be putting on my puffer jacket today. <laughs> well, but, you know, so, that's the way, it, the way it goes. I mean, I, I enjoyed my stay down there way back in, you know, it was 20 years ago, a little over 20 years ago now. And, I mean, my objective when I was there, when I wasn't doing work for Jordana was to, like, explore Perth and Fremantle and, uh, or Frio as some people call it, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I tried just about every kind of Australian beer that was sold in the grocery stores, you Because know, up here, everybody thinks of Australian beers as being like Foster's and like okay, down there, like you know, where you are, obviously, there's a lot more varieties of of local beers and you know that made in made in Australia than you can get here in the United yeah, well, States. Yeah,
0: well, a lot more since you uh, since you're here. Maybe we
1: need to get you back down. Yeah. Although right, right ours, now, then, right now, you have an interesting situation with the COVID and the, and the yeah, government taking place.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're not welcoming anyone
1: right now. No, they're not. But, and, but
0: it, it may not be too far away. Yeah. Maybe we, we're opening up borders in March. So, yeah, so that'll be an exciting time.
1: But yeah, that'd be, that'd yeah. be, that'd be fun. I mean, uh, I'd like to go see some of the interior of Australia. I know that it's mostly what you call desert, but. See, I when I was a kid, a child in the United States, I spent some of my early years in Tucson, Arizona, which is in the desert southwest of the United States. So that's kind of like where I, you know, from second grade through sixth grade in school, that's where I lived. And so like, you know, that was like desert, right? So <laughs> a little bit familiar with that.
0: Yeah, we call it um I drove across Australia once. We call it the Nullarbor, which is an Aboriginal name for no trees. But that's, it's not actually accurate because there hmm. are a lot of different foliage in the desert. So, yeah, it's a, I haven't seen much of our country. It's an enormous country, and a lot of it has no people. But, yeah, I, the centre of Australia is an incredible place to go. What's
1: the uh, re- they renamed Ayers Rock, didn't they?
0: Uh, no it's it's still as rock it's um
1: it has an aboriginal name now
0: does it yeah. wow there you go yeah. you, you know so many things such incredible knowledge I know that yeah you, you you can't climb it anymore you used to be able to climb it It's mm. a, a sacred site now but um
1: mm-hmm.
0: well John on that night we covered a lot of different things I, I want to thank you so much for your time and, likewise uh, the beautiful calm way that you are sharing things that are I know very heartfelt to you and I I share that as well. But I remain hopeful after every episode that I've done, I remain hopeful that um, we can put it on a chart. I think I'll leave it on that. You put it on Mm -hmm. a chart and it'll it'll tell you something. It'll tell you what to do, tell you something to change. Mm -hmm. And thank you for sharing all of that wisdom. I look forward to welcoming you back. I feel like if I say that in a public forum, then (laughs) I have to come. And um,
1: thank you so much for your time today. Well, I, I appreciate your time as well and uh, your contributions to all these uh, efforts, um, including not just the podcast but everything else that you're working on and accomplishing. I think that's very you know valuable and tremendous. Um, yes, I will agree to come back. I mean, it's not like I have a you know job to go to otherwise, and so
0: it's like
1: a, no problem.
0: Thank you so much for listening into episode four. There are a stack of resources and references that John has shared with us, and you'll find those in our show notes. And for those interested in additional discussions, you can join our private Facebook group, the ABA MPT podcast. I'm excited to welcome John back in coming episodes to talk about putting it on a chart. In the final episode for the year, I'll be summarizing key learnings from Dr. Abigail Calkin, Dr. Kimberly Barons, and Dr. John Eshelman from the first four podcasts and some lessons learned and setting sail on plans for the podcast in 2022. As BF Skinner famously said, a failure is not always a mistake. It may simply be the best one can do under the circumstances. The real mistake is to stop trying.